0: I hope that you had a great Thanksgiving. If you were here with us at the 1030 service last week, I just have two apologies. One, you're stuck with me two weeks in a row. And two, last week I preached Pastor Jeff's sermon. This week I wrote this, so if it goes downhill, you'll know why. (laughs) Let me pray. Father, it's great to be together. You've been faithful to us as individuals, as your people. You've been faithful to us as a church family and as we... Open your word today. Uh, Keep me away from anything that is untrue, um, that is not in line with your word. And may each of us not just be hearers of the word, but doers of the word as well. Hearing what we have to learn from Acts 17 and applying it to our life. In Jesus' name, amen. Unless you're an expert in the field of missions, you've probably never heard the name Robert Germain Thomas. He's often cited as the second Protestant missionary To Korea. We live in a world that doesn't often celebrate people who come in second place, so that's probably why you've never heard of him. As a young boy, he grew up as a pastor's kid in Wales. He had the zeal, the passion, the desire to serve as a missionary. So he graduated from college, he applied to go to China with the London Missionary Society, and his zeal was crushed when his application was denied. So he applied again. And that time he got accepted. He and his young wife travel from the UK all the way to Shanghai, China, to start serving as a missionary. It was the 1860s. He wasn't there very long before his young wife tragically and suddenly passed away. But he decides to stay, because his heart isn't for China, his heart is for Korea. He wants to do anything he can to bring the gospel to the Koreans. So he finds a way into the country, it's illegal. Evangelism, highly illegal at the time in Korea. So he gets into the nation, two and a half months, distributes Chinese Bibles because he didn't have any Korean Bibles. And he learns the language, gets kicked out, goes back to China. Is there for, I think it was a a year or two, finds a way back to Korea. But this time he's doing two illegal things at once. Not only is he sharing his faith, he also takes a job as an interpreter on an American trade vessel. Trade in Korea was also legal, so he was breaking the law twice. Well, as he continues upstream, he continues to distribute his Chinese Bibles and wants to tell people about Jesus. Doesn't really work. They get to a spot in the river where the locals tell the captain, do not even think about going any farther. You will die. You and your crew will die. You won't survive. But the captain doesn't listen to them and says, we're going to keep going, we're going upriver, we're getting to the capital city. So they get to a a point in the river where it's too shallow and the ship runs aground. And they begin facing gunfire from the Korean army. They manage to hold off the Koreans for a couple of weeks until they take a boat that was unmanned. They light it on fire and send it downstream, running into the American vessel, lighting it on fire. And Robert Thomas is forced to do what everyone else on the boat did, jump off or burn to death. He jumped off. Bibles in hand, swims to shore, is immediately confronted by the authorities, and he's on his knees begging, pleading for his life as he tries to give them his Bible, but it's to no avail. He loses his life as the first martyr in Korea. What do we do with an account like that? Think of a Cultural metric for the success of a missionary or a mission trip. I can think of three things acceptance, popularity. How many people downloaded the sermon? Was the message accepted or rejected? How many people are going to the church? Robert Thomas was completely rejected, so there's strike one. How about conversions? How many white roses were there? How many baptisms? How many people had testimonies and Robert Thomas? Strike. How about longevity? You know, at least if someone doesn't see success from their ministry, if they could be there for decades, for 30 or 40 or 50 years, then we'll call them a successful ministry. Yeah, he was in Korea for a matter of months. There's strike three, a flop of a mission trip. But I think we'll realize in our text in Acts 17 this morning that God changes our paradigm for a successful mission trip. For successful ministry. That he can take what you and I in our culture might call a flop, a failure. And he might use for his glory beyond what we could hope or dream. So if you have your Bibles, let's look at Acts 17 together. You remember where we were last week? Last week we finished up Acts chapter 16. Paul and Silas were in Philippi. They go from the bottom to the top. They're in prison They were almost beaten to death, and then God sets them free. They go to the jailer's house. The jailer and his whole family accept Christ, and they go from the bottom to the top, and they travel to the town of Thessalonica. Acts 17, verse 1. When they passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. Let me pause there. It was about 100 miles from Philippi to Thessalonica. They traveled along the Ignatian Way. It was a famous road. This was Macedonia, modern-day Greece. And Paul did what you and I would have done. You're not going to walk 100 miles in a day. So you find two Airbnbs, one in Amphipolis, one in Apollonia. Don't say that three times fast. And spends a night in each. I don't think he did any ministry there. It just looks like he spent the night and continued on to Thessalonica. Verse 2. When Paul went in, as was his custom, on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus, whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. Some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous, taking some of the wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd." And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason, some of the brothers, before the city authorities, shouting, These men who've turned the, turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason's received them. And they're all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there's another king, Jesus. And the people in the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they'd taken money as a security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. So Paul starts his mini- ministry in Thessalonica. It was right on the coast of the Mediterranean, the Aegean Sea, a city of 200,000. At the time, it was the capital of the region. If you're going to do a mission trip with high impact, you're going to go to Thessalonica because it was a city of high commerce. It was a very important city at the time, so that's where he goes. And Paul did what he always did. He, when he goes to a new city, he goes to the synagogue. The synagogue was the place where the Jewish people worshipped. He knew that he'd have an audience there. He, he goes to the synagogue, and he begins to preach. But What did he preach? Well, we don't have a manuscript of his sermon here, but we do in Acts chapter 13. We have a manuscript of his message. He preached Jesus from the Old Testament. When the text says that he reasoned from the Scriptures, remember the New Testament wasn't compiled at this point, so Scriptures means the Old Testament. Paul goes to the Old Testament and he preaches Jesus from the Old Testament, he looks at the prophets and demonstrates to his audience that it was necessary for Jesus, the Messiah, to come, to live, to die, and to rise again. But Acts 17 does tell us the key of Paul's message is the resurrection. If someone can disprove the resurrection of Jesus, then Christianity is a worthless myth that's not worth believing. It might sound extreme. That's exactly what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Allow me to read there. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You're still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we of all people are most to be pitied. You see what Paul is saying? That the resurrection is the glue, the linchpin that holds our faith together. If Jesus wasn't raised from the dead, how could we hope to be raised from the dead someday? If Jesus died but wasn't raised from the dead, then Jesus is a liar or a false prophet because Jesus himself predicted that he would rise from the dead. Paul's saying that if the resurrection is a myth, then we shouldn't be Christians and our faith is pointless. But the resurrection is not a myth. The resurrection is reality. Jesus walked out of the tomb on the third day. A skeptic might say, well, you weren't there. You didn't see Jesus walk out of the tomb. How can you be so sure? There's a lot of different evidence of the resurrection. Here's one. Think of his disciples. Think of the men that spent three years with Jesus, following Jesus around, hearing the teaching, seeing the miracles. The ones who were commissioned by ministry, uh, for ministry by Jesus. The, the ones who saw Jesus ascend in Acts chapter one. Those men. What happened to them? All but one were martyred, as they taught about the resurrection. And the one who wasn't martyred, John, he was burned alive in oil and somehow survived. All of the men that were with Jesus as his apostles, commissioned by ministry for ministry by Jesus, they gave up their life preaching the resurrection. If the resurrection was a hoax, if it was a lie, at least one of them is going to crack under the pressure. You're not going to die for a hoax. The way the disciples lived their life is proof, the reality of the resurrection. But for you and I, when we share the gospel, when we talk about what Jesus has done on our behalf, we can't leave out the resurrection. Yes, Jesus lived. Yes, he died on the cross for us. But he rose from the dead, conquering sin and death once and for all. As the first fruits of those who've fallen asleep, he walked out of the tomb. Because Jesus lives, you and I have hoped that we will also be resurrected in the same way. We can't leave out the resurrection. But as Paul shared the good news, shared the resurrection with his audience in Thessalonica, yes, some believed in Jesus. But others rejected Jesus with the same sort of zeal. It's the religious leaders. The text calls them the Jews. They're the ones who are in control of the synagogue. They were jealous because as they watched people respond to Paul's message, they watched people believe in Jesus, their power, their authority, their influence began to diminish, and they were jealous. So they start a riot. They go down to the the slums. They find men of the rabble. They're convicted felons who have a seared conscience who will do anything for money. So they pay them off to start a mob, start a riot. And it works. They understood the concept of a mob mentality 1,900 years before anyone would ever use that term, psychology. We understand the power of a mob. I mean, think just a month or two ago on Halloween night, in South Korea when 150 young adults lost their life because of a mob crush. Mobs are powerful. That's what the leaders in Thessalonica were concerned about. They knew that mobs were powerful. And as the mob gains steam, they they go to the place they know Paul's staying. They go to Jason's house. He's probably a relative of Paul if it's the same guy referenced in Romans chapter 16. They don't find Paul. They don't find Silas. The next best thing, they pull Jason out of the house they throw him and other brothers in front of the city authorities, and they accuse Paul of treason. Look again at Acts 17, the back half of verse 6. Their accusation, these men who've turned the world upside down, they've come here also, and Jason's received them. And they, they're acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there's another king, Jesus. Do you realize how ironic this is? The religious leaders are the one who are turning the world upside down by starting a riot, and then they're saying it's Paul's fault doesn't make any sense. And they even say something that's not even true. They're accusing Paul of preaching against Caesar. Did Paul preach against Caesar? No, of course not. Look at Romans chapter 13. He commands believers everywhere. He's talking to the church at Rome, telling them to submit to governing authorities. Paul didn't preach against Rome. He wasn't anti-Caesar. He actually taught believers to be model citizens. So this is not true. But the truth was irrelevant. The only thing that mattered was the claim of the mob. And they were worried that, having a mob destroying the city that they were going to inflict the wrath of Caesar on themselves. That was the last thing they wanted. So they paid off Jason. They said, Jason, give us some money and if they leave town, we'll give you your money back. That's what happened. Paul and Silas, there was no trial. There was no opportunity to defend themselves. There was no last chance to go to the synagogue. They didn't even have a chance to go back to, the, back to church one more time and talk to the brothers and sisters. That was it. The next verse says they left town Immediately. Three Sabbaths, three sermons, they're gone. How would you react if you were Paul and Silas? I know what I'd be thinking. Well, that was a flop. This church is never going to succeed. How can you expect gospel growth after three weeks? How can you expect a church to survive after three sermons? It's not going to work. We're going to have to go to another town because this was a failure. I mean, think of our cultural metric for mission success. Were they accepted? No, not really. They were kicked out in three weeks. Were there conversions? Yeah, there were some, but people actually rejected the message even more strongly than they received it. How about longevity? Yeah, three weeks. I wouldn't call that a very long church planning trip. Three strikes, you're out. Looks like a failure to me. But as we zoom out in the entirety of the New Testament, you probably remember that Paul wrote not one but two letters to the church at Thessalonica. And that letter, which was written years after Paul was there, might give us a little bit of a glimpse into what happened in the church at Thessalonica after Paul left. Listen to these words from 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 starting in verse 2. We give thanks to God always For all of you constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers loved by God, that He's chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction. With the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. See what Paul is saying? Something wild happened in Thessalonica. Something Holy Spirit inspired, something supernatural. It was a revival like atmosphere. Something that Paul couldn't take the credit for. After he left, there was this incredible gospel growth in the church at Thessalonica. And Paul's thinking, man, I know that they're gonna experience the same sort of persecution that I experienced. That's what happened after Paul left. They received affliction and persecution. They weren't just surviving. The church in Thessalonica was thriving to the extent that they became the model church through the whole region. What you and I think of as a three-week mission trip flop turned into the single healthiest church in the world at the time. It's wild. And then who gets the credit? God does. Not Paul. Because God's the one who causes growth. If you're taking notes this morning, that's the first principle. God gives delayed growth. You can put delayed in parentheses. God gives delayed growth, which I think is comforting, liberating, and frustrating as a believer. Think of the comforting aspect. Growth is not your job. It's not my job. Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 that Apollos watered, Paul planted, Apollos watered, but God gives the growth. That's what we see in our, our text. God's the one who causes gr- spiritual growth in people's hearts. But if we're honest, growth never happens at the rate, of the timeline that you and I wish it did. Think of a garden. If you plant a garden in the spring, it'd be ridiculous to go out the next day and try to see if your garden started to grow. It's not how growth works, it's not how spiritual growth works. It's rarely overnight and it's often delayed. And if we're honest, it's frustrating. Maybe you've spent weeks, months, years spiritually investing in another person or a group of people, and nothing's happened. You want to throw in the towel. Think of how that might apply to our church family. Some of you serve in children's church or one-way club. You work with our our younger kids. I'm guessing on a Wednesday night, nine o'clock, there's weeks you're thinking, what am I doing here? Did these kids get anything out of this lesson? In that Bible verse that they just regurgitated for a token, do they even have any idea what that means? You're sowing spiritual seeds because you have no idea the impact that you're having on the the students. And in five or 10 years, when that verse clicks in their mind, and they realize, wait, the wage of my sin is death, but the Gift of God's eternal life. The light bulb comes on. It's a verse they memorize as a five-year-old. And that seed starts to grow. If you're serving in one-way club and you're measuring growth on Thursday morning, it's a failed mission trip. Keep sowing seeds. The growth is delayed. Maybe you serve in G-180 with our junior high or high school students. I'm guessing you think the same thing. Wednesday night, 9 o'clock, thinking, and did they get anything out of the lesson? Did they hear anything I had to say in small group tonight? I just feel like I'm hurting cats. What am I doing here? Growth is delayed. Keep sowing spiritual seeds. You have no idea the impact that you have on those students. They're receiving and listening and hearing more than you probably ever realize. And even beyond that, they're not just listening to what you're teaching. They're watching you. They're watching how you respond when they push your buttons. They're watching how you worship on Wednesday night or how you talk to the leader next to you and choose not to sing. They model after us. You have no idea the impact that you're going to have five or 10, 20 years down the road. If you serve in G180 and you measure growth on Thursday morning, it's going to be a failed mission trip. Keep sowing seeds, the growth is delayed. Don't throw in the towel. But when we don't see the growth that we want, it's weary. It's tiring. And that might be the most tiring for mom and dad or for grandma and grandpa. When you sow seeds, you water seeds in the hearts of your kids or grandkids for years, maybe decades, nothing. Just want to throw in the towel. Don't lose hope. So mom and dad are the primary disciple maker of their kids. And we sow seeds, we water seeds by reading the Bible as a family, by praying as a family, by asking our kids what they learn at One Way Club or G180, by having spiritual conversations as they come up throughout the day and the week. God's the one who causes the growth. Don't give up sowing seeds. There's some weary parents here this morning who are ready to throw in the towel and say, I'm not doing another Bible reading before bed. I'm not taking my kids to Wednesday night one more time. It's not working. Don't quit. Keep sowing. Keep watering. But there's some other parents that they're certainly watering, but they're watering the wrong seed. They're watering the seed of academic success and getting a 35 on the ACT or a full ride to college, that becomes the most important thing. That's where all of the energy goes. Or mom and dad water the seed of traveling sports. And getting that starting spot on the team or playing D1 or D2, college athletics, that becomes the priority. And mom and dad are watering the seeds, but it's not the right seed. That list could go on and on, couldn't it? The goal of a mom and dad is not a happy five-year-old. It's not a 10-year-old that's starting on their traveling team. It's not an 18-year-old that gets a full ride to college. Mom and dad's goal is glorifying God by helping our kids take the next step in their walk with Christ. We've got to water the right seed. And when we don't see the growth that we desire, what do we do? We talk to the one who causes growth. We say, Lord, I'm growing weary. Will you do a great work of growth? My son's heart, my daughter's heart, my boss's heart, my grandpa's heart. And we continue to pray because God's the one who causes growth. Does it happen in my timeline? No. But he's the one who causes growth, reminding us that he's the one who does the work in people's hearts and not me. Don't give up sowing seeds. Well, Paul's mission trip in Thessalonica, yep, it, added, it ended just about as quickly As it started, three weeks. But God did what He often does with Paul's ministry. He uses persecution and opposition to keep Paul moving. And He sends him 50 miles down the road to a far more insignificant town right on the foothills of the mountains called Berea. Verse 10. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. They arrived and they went to the Jewish synagogue. Now, these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. And many of them therefore believed, with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. When the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. Then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea, but Silas and Timothy remained there. Paul goes to Berea and does the same thing. He walks into the synagogue. He opens up the Old Testament, and he keeps preaching Jesus. But Luke says that the Jews were far more noble in Berea than Thessalonica. He's not talking about all the Jews. He's talking about the religious leaders. The religious leaders in Thessalonica, they rejected Paul's message, but not the case in Berea. They went home. They opened up the Old Testament. They compared what they heard to what they read, and they realized That Paul's message was true, that the Old Testament scriptures do indeed point to Christ, and they believed. They accepted the free gift of salvation through Christ. They believed Paul's message. But they didn't assume that it was true. They searched the scriptures daily to see if what Paul was saying was true. If you've been around, the church and evangelicalism long enough, you've probably heard a very Christianese phrase that comes right out of this text. Be a good Berean. Ever heard that before? It comes right out of Acts 17. The Bereans refused to make spiritual assumptions, and they compared what they heard to what they read in God's Word. If you're taking notes, our second principle is this, stop making spiritual assumptions. Stop making spiritual assumptions. We need to do the same thing as the church in Berea, refusing to make spiritual assumptions. And evangelicalism in our country today, there's a bit of a celebrity culture. Everyone has their tribe, has their leader, has their pastor. Everything they hear from that one pastor, that one church, that one ministry, it's always true, and they don't search Scripture. It's led to some dangerous streams of theology. It's also led to megachurches that are a mile wide and an inch deep because... Frankly, a lot of the people who attend the church are just bad Bereans. They assume what they hear is true, but they don't go back to Scripture. If you've been around Highland long enough, you've probably heard Pastor Jeff pray something like this before he preaches. If I say anything unwise or untrue, allow it to be quickly forgotten by those who hear. It's a wise and a humble statement. Pastor Jeff understands that no pastor, no teacher, no seminary, no theology podcast, no Christian book, no theology textbook, no radio ministry, none of them are inerrant. Only God's Word is inspired and inerrant. We are not. So we always have to take what we hear and go back to this, go back to the foundation of our faith, what we know is true compared to Scripture. So how are we doing at being good Bereans? I've got a five-question eval as we wrap up this morning for us to maybe understand what it might look like to take the next step in our relationship with God's Word. Are we being good Bereans? Here's our first question. Do I read the Bible every day? That seems obvious, doesn't it? But if you're going to be a good Berean, if I'm going to be a good Berean, we've got to be reading the Bible, and we've got to be reading it every day, and I'm not talking about devotional material. I'm not talking about, you know what I'm talking about. You know, it's one Bible verse, and then a paragraph of commentary, and then we close it and say, wait, I did my Bible reading for the day. Is it helpful? Yeah, it can be helpful, but that shouldn't be our primary intake of God's Word. Because we're reading someone else's interpretation, someone else's application. They did all the work for us, and then we spend a couple minutes benefiting from their work. Yeah, it's helpful, but our primary intake of God's Word needs to be reading it on our own. More than just a verse or two, a chapter or two or three, or an inductive study, spending consistent daily time with God's Word. What's that looked like in your life recently, my life recently? How can we take the next step in being consistent in our time in God's Word? Maybe that seems like a a high bar. So maybe for the month of December, you can set a goal to read one chapter of Scripture every day for the month of December. It's so vital for us to be in God's Word. It's imperative if we want to be good Bereans. That's the first. Here's the second. Do I use a helpful study resource? A study resource could be study Bible. It could be a page on YouTube like the Bible Project, which has a a video for every book of the Bible so that if you're going to dive into something like Ezekiel, for example, you can at least watch a 10-minute video knowing what you're getting yourself into. Don't believe the lie that the Bible is too difficult for us to understand. It's not. We've got to be spending time in God's Word, and God's given us incredible resources for us to understand what we're reading. Number three, when I come to church, do I follow along in my Bible when I listen to a sermon? It's a great way for us to be good Bereans. I know we have the words on the screen. It's helpful. But I find that I read along a lot better when I open up the Bible myself. I don't have anything against someone using their phone, a Bible app, but for me, When I'm following along in a sermon, I'm opening my Bible app, and then, you know that notification pops up? The next five minutes are gone for me. Maybe you're holier than me, but for me, it's a lot easier if I leave my phone on Do Not Disturb and I grab a hard copy of God's Word. And when we read God's Word in paper form, we understand how the parts fit together. We understand where the books fit with each other. We we get a better picture of the big picture of God's Word. Do I follow along in my Bible when I listen to a sermon? Number four, when I listen to a sermon, do I take notes? I won't judge anyone who gets out a pen and starts writing these down really fast. And then if you're with us a week ago, I'm not talking about making a mask on your bulletin and then holding it up and watching the sermon through a mask. I'm not talking about that. If you weren't with us last week, you have no idea idea what I'm talking about. That's fine. When we write notes we retain what we hear much better. When we take notes, then we can open up our Bible in the afternoon when we get home from church, and then we can compare what we heard with what we read in Scripture. It's really hard for us to be a good Berean if we're not writing down what we're listening to in a sermon. It's a great way for us to be a good Berean. Number five, do I participate in a Bible study beyond Sunday mornings? At Highland, there or no shortage of opportunities to dive into God's Word beyond a Sunday service. One-way club, G180 for our students, young adults, men's Bible study, women's Bible study, life groups, 920, Sunday school classes. There are so many ways for us to dive into God's Word beyond just for 35 minutes during the service on Sunday mornings. Well, how do you do on our five-question eval? Are there ways that each of us can take another step in becoming a better Berean? Well, Paul's mission trip in Berea ended about as quickly as it did in Thessalonica. It doesn't tell us how long he was there. If I had to guess, it was three weeks, 50 miles. It's not very far from Thessalonica to Berea. The Jews seemed fairly agitated. It didn't take them long to make the trip. Looks like another flop. But again, God reminds us that he can take what looks like a flop for a success. I didn't finish the story about Robert Thomas. After he died, the authorities commanded that all of the copies of scripture be destroyed, be burned. But Pak young Sikh didn't listen. Some believe he was actually the one who carried out the execution order. He was an officer. And he took those Bibles home with him, and he used them as wallpaper in his house. Within 15 years, there were 100 churches in Korea. They look back to Robert Thomas and his Chinese Bibles as the beginning. How does that make any sense? It doesn't, because God took what looked like a flop and a failure and used it as a gospel success, because God causes the growth, not you and me. Let's pray. Father, there's many things for us to think about and consider from our time in your word this morning. Sometimes we give ourselves too much credit, thinking that we have more power and control than we actually do, instead of yielding to the one who is in control, yielding to the one who alone holds the power to initiate spiritual growth in people's hearts. And for those that might be heavy on our hearts that we want to see growth spiritually, may we submit them to you and ask that you do a work that only you can do in their hearts. And remind us that our job is to water and to plant. Allow us to be faithful to do that this week. And allow us to take the next step in our relationship with your word, to be good Bereans, to spend time reading it, studying it, memorizing it, talking about it with others, and always comparing what we hear to what we read in your Word. Allow us to take the next step in our walk this week. In Jesus' name, amen.